You are listening to a shortcast from the London School of Economics and Global Science as part of our Shaping the Post-COVID World series, a digested version of our live online public events. The work of the future, Where Will It Come From, was recorded on the 5th of May, 2021. The full version of this event is available to download by the LSE Events website or from your usual podcast provider. I want to welcome everyone to uh, the LSE's online uh, events platform. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the U.S. Center at LSE, which is hosting today's lecture and discussion on the work of the future. Today's event is part of the U.S. Center's Wanger Distinguished Lecture Series at LSE, which is made possible by the generosity of the Henry and Consuelo Wanger Foundation. And we meet today to take up a topic that is of growing concern to policymakers and publics alike, the effect of technological innovation on the workplace. This is true in the United States, but the concerns about what technology and automation might mean for workers and citizen welfare is an issue that cuts across the globe. And these concerns and anxieties have only deepened with the dislocations and inequalities caused by COVID. How will technological innovation and change change the workplace? And how can we ensure that the benefits are widely shared? These are big questions, and we are very fortunate today to have someone who is a leading voice in this area of research and analysis, Professor David Autor. We are also very fortunate to have Professor Judy Weitzman on the platform today to help us kick off what I'm sure will be a very lively uh, discussion. So, David, with that, welcome to LSE's online platform. It's great to have you with us. We look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Peter, for that nice introduction. Thank you, Judy, for uh, coming to participate in the discussion today. And I'm delighted to speak to be here. So the topic of my uh, remarks is the work of the future. Uh, where will it come from? So let me. I want to uh, set the context here. This slide shows you the evolution of, of employment to population rates of men and women in the United States from 1890 to 2015. And as you can see, for most of the last 125 years, the fraction of adults working in the paid labor market has risen, not fallen. A lot of that rise reflects the movement of women out of unpaid, constrictive uh, work uh, to uh, the paid labor market where they have much more choice, opportunity to uh, exercise uh, creativity and use their skills and education. So looking at this picture, there's no immediate reason to think that we are uh, running out of work. And that itself is a startling fact, because if you think about it, uh, the last 200 years uh, have been characterized by incredible labor saving innovation. We invented you know, tractors to replace human muscular power, assembly lines to eliminate uh, repetitive artisanal work and, and automate that, digital technology that you know, replaces cumbersome, inaccurate human calculation. And uh, these innovations have worked. Uh, we don't dig ditches any longer by hand. We don't pound tools out of wrought iron. Uh, we don't do bookkeeping with actual books. Uh, and yet, um, over time, we've not run out of work so far. Uh, and so it's useful before we talk about what the future holds to think about how we got here and why we have not run out of jobs uh, so far, despite all this labor-saving automation. I'm going to argue that there are three reasons, uh, and hopefully I'll be doing them in terms of increasing unfamiliarity to you. 
So the first one is simple human insatiability, uh, never get enough. Uh, so to illustrate that point, here's a picture of the Caven family of California and all their material possessions in uh, 1985. It's a wonderful photograph taken by Peter Menzel, who also does these for other countries. And you can see looking at all these belongings, and I remind you, this is 35 years ago. I'm sure they didn't, I'm sure they thought they had mostly necessities, but if you look at the number of bicycles and bookshelves and lamps and televisions and, and so on, there's an incredible amount of belongings in this household. And if you were to look at a middle uh, income American household today, I'm sure it would have two or three times as many belongings. Um, and so uh, one thing that illustrates is that as we get wealthier, our perceived needs rise. Uh, people consume roughly in proportion to income. They don't save more as they get wealthier, at least as countries get wealthier, they don't save more. And so, uh, all of that consumption for goods and services and experiences and, and healthcare and so on creates work. So we tend to create work for one another as we get wealthier because we don't run out of material needs. That's one reason. A second reason is um, people often think about automation or computerization as, as eliminating work. And it certainly does some of that. But simultaneously, it often gives us tools that improve the work that we do rather than eliminating it. So let me illustrate that with some examples. You know, pneumatic nail guns make roofers far more productive. They can do more roofing uh, in the course of a day than an individual could do uh, without power tools. And that makes them more productive and also more valuable, right? That raises their wages. If they could accomplish half as much in a day, they would probably be paid about half as much. Or, uh, you know, the incredible battery of uh, diagnostic tests available to uh, doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners doesn't eliminate the need for medical labor. It actually increases it. Right. It makes those people more productive. It increases the range of things that can be diagnosed and then treated. And so these are complements and not substitutes for uh, medical labor or, uh, you know, CAD and design tools used by architects and engineers allow people to you know, design and render buildings and perform calculations. This doesn't just save time. It allows for uh, more creative uh, more experimental, uh, you know, more uh, a greater variety of ideas and designs that would be feasible uh, if people were doing these things by hand or building prototypes. Or uh, electronic tools like the ones we're using here allow uh, educators to hopefully make their uh, educational tools, you know, more cost effective, more accessible, and ideally more interesting as well, more engaging. Right? So these amplify uh, education. They don't eliminate it. Or even if you're a long haul trucker, uh, cloud-based routing software allows you to uh, go from place to place without ever carrying an empty load because uh, you can always figure out uh, where, where the next fractional load is that you want to pick up. So the point I want to make here is a lot of what technology does is actually make us better at what we do. Uh, if you were of the, if you were in the good fortune to have a you know a professional technical or managerial job, uh, you know people think oh technology has transformed my work that's what they commonly say but that's actually not true what technology has done is transform the tools you use to do your work fundamentally what people are doing in those categories of occupations uh, what academics do what medical doctors do what attorneys do what market researchers do what engineers do they're accomplishing the same tasks and are the same producing the same outputs with better inputs and with better tools so that's the second reason why uh, automation hasn't eliminated, uh, eliminated us, or eliminated the need for our skills and expertise and judgment and creativity. The third, which I think is, is the least talked about, is we are constantly inventing new work. 
it's not just more of the same uh, done more efficiently. So about two thirds of all employment in the US today is in quote, new work. And that's a really important point. So in 1900, 40% of all US employment was in agriculture. At present, it's under 2%. That doesn't mean that people do 38% less variety of stuff because there's all kinds of new activities that weren't present at that time. So it's not simply that automation has encroached us out of, you know, encroached into what we used to do and pushed us into a narrower sphere of activities. In many ways, it's helped us create new activities. And I'll be more concrete about that in a second. So here are some examples. So the U.S. Census Bureau, every decade, you know, has to record uh, the census according to the Constitution, and people write, ask people to write in their industry and occupation. And then people, when they write them in, the Census Bureau looks up in volume. So here's the write-in. What code does this correspond to? When people start writing something in new they haven't seen before, they add it to this kind of catalog of occupational titles and industry titles. Not something that you would find in public use data, but it's an internal census document. So here's some of the things they picked up over the last 80 years. So 1940, automatic welding machine operators. Uh, in 1960s, textile chemists, uh, controllers, remotely piloted vehicles, artificial intelligence specialists. They detected that as early as 2000. Pediatric vascular surgeons. So you might look at this list and say, ah, I get it. These are people who you know use the technology, design the technology, integrate the technology, sell the technology. It's all about the technology. Now, let me point you to the second column. These are also categories that were added uh, in those decades. Acrobatic dancer, pageant director, hypnotherapist, amusing part worker, drama therapist, sommelier. So let's let be clear. You know, there have been sommeliers for at least as long as there's been Republic of France. But in the United States, there weren't enough of them to register with the Census Bureau until, until 2010. So, in fact, a lot of new work is in specialized uh, services that are, uh, you know, entertainment, they might be recreation, they might be health, they might be uh, counseling, and they're not overtly technological. Like one of those in the list is clairvo uh, clairvoyant. It was what was one that was added around 1970. Uh, as far as I know, there hasn't been a lot of technological progress in clairvoyance, uh, and yet uh, it becomes more popular over time. We need to raise productivity and we need to direct it in the areas where it's most useful uh, to get the most out of it. So, you know, probably less in chatbots and more in healthcare, for example. So um, let me conclude. I asked this question, where will the work of the future come from? Well, the answer is that it's ours to invent. Uh, it is a mistake to think that it is preordained what will arrive. And we just have to try to predict. We actually have to shape it. We are the people who decide what the future will look like. We collectively, I don't mean we the people on your Zoom video right now. If we deploy existing te and new technologies into existing labor uh, institutions, we will get the same problematic results. We are not on a good trajectory, not for technological reasons, but for institutional reasons. And there's a palpable fear of the future. That's why we're having this conversation. And I would argue it's a consequence of the divergence between innovation and labor market opportunity. It's not because of the innovation itself. It's because we have had so much innovation with so little shared prosperity. When people say, I'm afraid a robot's going to eliminate my job, that's not a statement about robots. That's a statement about capitalism, <laughs> right? Uh, and I, you know, believe me, I'm a free market economist, but uh, I understand uh, that these there are real uh, uh, risks to this. Simultaneously, we should reject false trade-offs between economic growth and strong labor markets. There's no evidence that weak labor markets make for strong growth. Everything we've seen is when things are working well, these go well together. And in fact, this political support that's needed for to adopt technological change and to embrace change requires people to have a sense of security, which requires strong labor markets. These things are complements. The majority of today's jobs, as I've already stressed, had yet to be invented a century ago. So the job of the president is to invest, to build a future 
that we ourselves want to inhabit and we want our children to inhabit after us. And that's where the work of the future will come from. Okay, I'll stop there. Uh, welcome uh, Judy's uh, comments and uh, thoughts and then your questions. So it's a complete sort of delight to hear your fantastic talk. And um, I'm going to start by just talking about some of the things I agree with, because, you know, just to, you know, to, to kind of underline them, if you like, for the audience. Um, I've just got kind of four points and then I'll uh, add some, some emphasis of my own. I mean, for a start, what's wonderful is that your work is historical, right? You know, economic history I'm, a, I'm, um, I'm passionate about. I mean, I started work on the impact of technology on work during the 1980s microelectronic revolution. And I believe, like many Marxists at that time, influenced by Harry Braverman and other people, that technology would simply de-skill, um, you know, industrial workers, that we'd have paperless offices, that it'd be the end of white-collar administrative work. And as David says, you know, if you have a historical lens, you, you know, we've been here so many times before with these grand general predictions about the revolutionary impact of technology on work. And whether they're utopian or more commonly dystopian, we really need to get past this crude kind of, you know, dichotomous debate, which you've done um, beautifully this evening and you do in your work. Um, importantly, this kind of dichotomous debate is really premised on technological determinism. And critiquing this idea has been central to my work and my colleagues in science and technology studies for several decades. It's really been central to them. And in all this work, we've been arguing that technology is not an autonomous, inevitable driver, but rather is shaped by social, political and economic forces. That human choices are embedded in the very design, if you like, in the material architecture of technology, whether it's hardware or software. So I'm so glad, again, that David stresses this. I mean, you're an honorary sociologist of work, I have to say, you know. And I like very much the line in your report, which I echo in all of my work, that institutional factors affect what technologies are invented, how they're applied and distributed. Thirdly, as a sociologist of work and technology, we actually study workplaces, you know, and the complex processes of technological innovation and adoption in specific organisations. And once you do that, you learn very quickly that technological diffusion and implementation always needs to be understood in context, as its impact is highly predictable. It hardly ever works out according to plan when you're actually looking at a workplace going through technological change. And as you say, diffusion and implementation could often take decades. It's a continual process. And, and, I, and I feel there's may, way too much focus really on the new and glitzy and not enough awareness of older technological systems that are still in the process of being adopted. And we have a, a scandal at the moment about a, a post office IT um, system that I, you know, maybe someone will raise in the discussion, um, which is, you know, the implications of which this faulty IT technology are still being worked through decades um, later. So I really like the fact that your work is so much focused on sectoral analysis. I mean, you didn't say that much this evening, but in your report, it's very much looking at specific sectors and technological change, whether it's in healthcare, um, insurance. And by doing that, you, you avoid the common generalizations made by mainstream economists about the impact of technology on the whole economy, as if it was all of one piece and determinate. And finally, as someone who did her PhD on industrial democracy and workers' cooperatives, 
Um, and I well remember in Britain the bullet report of the Wilson Labor government in the 1970s that was really advocating um, worker participation on management boards. I'm glad that you called for more workers' representation and voice and that you stress so much that really it's been the demise of trade unions that's been such a major cause of wage polarisation. And I also, of course, like that you advocate moving away from a shareholder kind of capitalism to a stakeholder capitalism. And um, like David, I'm very concerned about the quality of some of the newly created jobs, the poor pay and conditions of what we now talk about as the gig economy or in my circles, platform work. Uh, we, we often talk about that, such as Uber or Deliveroo drivers. And again, I think it's very important to always stress that there's nothing, nothing inevitable about this. The vast profits made from this kind of work need not necessarily go to the owners of the platforms, and platforms don't even need to be owned by huge corporations. I've heard some very sort of good nascent discussions about setting up platforms run by workers themselves. Um, and in the meantime, as you stress, we really need to regulate the decent working conditions for these kinds of new jobs. I mean, I guess, you know, the only thing I can say on hopeful days is that there was a good discussion here as a result of the pandemic about what essential work is, you know, that suddenly there was much more recognised, you know, recognition that actually not only care workers but bus drivers and railway, you know, that, that there was a whole kind of set of jobs that were very low pay, that were considered low skill, but actually were completely kind of essential during this period. And, you know, on a hope, hope, my hopeful days are that actually we'll start thinking about what skilled work is and what skilled work isn't in a different kind of way, and that we really will be thinking about essential work um, as important work that actually is very skilled work, you know, like care work that's traditionally been seen as low skilled and therefore underpaid or childcare work, and that we'll rethink the sort of compensation on different kinds of work. And I mean, here there has been kind of some movement of regulation and unionization of kind of platform work and gig work. And I, you know, I, and I'm hoping that that will kind of be a force uh, for change as well. You know, the whole business about contractual or employee status and those sort of things. Yeah, I mean, we need to modernize institutions. They, they were built around one rule model of work, which made sense, you know, in the early 20th century and is out of date now. And it, it is a choice, right? You know, we can look, as I put up that figure about what low wage work is paid in different countries. Mm. And, you know, countries, you know, there's a decision about what are acceptable labor standards, what social safety nets are guaranteed. And, you know, yes, it, it reduces inequality. It means the rich people are less rich. It doesn't mean those countries grow less rapidly or are, you know, uh, you know, less innovative. <laughs> so, you know, it is a social and political choice over which we have agency uh, and we fool ourselves when we say there's only one way the market dictates it. It can't be another way than it is. Obviously, it can be different. Thank you for listening. You can find our latest events via our Twitter and LSE Public Events and like our Facebook page at LSE Bliss. Alternatively, you can sign up to our newsletter via our website www.lse.ac.uk stroke events. Mm-hmm.